Hi, uh, my name is Nathan. I am not a pastor here, but they let me talk every once in a while. Um, bef- let's start with prayer. Um, yeah, would you bow your heads with me? Lord God, we thank you for this day. Thank you for having some heat here, Lord, and just a building to meet in, Lord, and to have your word um, so readily available to us. Lord, I pray that we would not take those things for granted. And Lord, would you use this time to to burn your truth into our hearts, Lord, and teach us how to live life for you. Amen. Um, so, <clears throat> there are notes for this sermon in the back. Um, there will be, anyway, after the sermon. And you can just pick those up on the way out. So hopefully that will free you up to kind of put your pens down and, and listen um, and give you something to go back over during the week. Um, so let's get started. Let's see if this thing works. Um, whenever you read a book in the Bible, whenever we talk about a book in the Bible, we need to remember its context. And so these are questions for you guys. Who wrote, who wrote Genesis? Good. Doing good so far. Um, Eric talked a little bit about this, but who did he write it to? Anyone. Who was he writing it to? Israel. Okay. Good. When did the Israelites get this book? Yeah. During the, I mean, the Exodus, the time of wandering in the desert. They had probably actually, by the time these were put together by Moses, already seen the promised land and not, not trusted God enough to actually be able to enter it. And so they're in this time of wandering in the desert. Um, and why, why did Moses write Genesis along with the other five books of the Pentateuch? Yeah, to give, to give the people of Israel direction. They had just been rescued from Egypt. And he wanted them to know about the God who had rescued them. And so he wrote these books. Um, and he wrote them to tell them how, you know, how to do life with God. Not just with God, but for God. Um, so let's read Genesis 4 together. I'm going to read it straight through and then we'll kind of walk back through it um, in little chunks. So this is Genesis 4 verse 1. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? 
The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city. He named it after his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujal, and Mahujal was the father of Methusel, and Methusel was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Adah and the other Zalah. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in deserts and raise livestock. <laughs> That's all right. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and flute. Zalah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zalah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. Adam lay with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel, since Cain has killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At the time, at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. All right. So that's Genesis 4. Thank you for bearing with me. Um, just going to get rid of this. So recap quickly what's happened in Genesis so far. In Genesis 1, we see that God creates everything. Um, and we find out things about God from his creation, kind of by inference. We have a God who's orderly. He separates elements. Um, he's all-powerful. He can create out of nothing. That's something none of us can do. And he also institutes certain rhythms in life by example, um, namely the, the work-Sabbath rhythm. Um, in Genesis 2, we see mankind's creation retold, and that lets us know that there's, that there's something special about mankind that sets him apart from the rest of creation. Um, we are the only part of creation that has the ability to bear God's image. And, that, and man, men and women are both created without ability, therefore we are of equal worth, um, though our roles look different. In Genesis 3, we see the fall of mankind. And with, with Adam and Eve's decision to choose things that are not of, not of God, <clears throat> they invite death into the world. Um, and it, but even in this kind of this entrance of death, we see kind of a foretelling of a future redeemer. And he, before we start talking about the text, and the reason I have all this stuff, I know, we're dying to get in there, but <laughs> um, is to just kind of train us how to read scripture. Like, in particular, we're reading Genesis right now. It's an Old Testament narrative. There's lots of little stories that make up a bigger story. 
about God. And we don't read this the same way we read Psalms. We don't read this the same way we read, you know, <clears throat> prophecy like in Revelation. And we don't read it like an epistle. Um, and here, but here's some things to keep in mind as we're going through Genesis. You know, narratives record what happened, not what ought to have happened. Thus, they don't, most of the time, have a direct individual moral application. You don't see someone doing something in Genesis and say, that's how we do it. Unless God specifically tells you, either in that passage or somewhere else, that's how you're supposed to live life. Um, another big thing that can get us in trouble is narratives include all the details that the author thought was important, that Moses, in this case, thought was important. You're going to see in our passage today, there's a few times where, for instance, we don't know where Cain's wife comes from. But, I mean, if, if this is true, if Moses included all the things that he thought were important to tell his story with his purpose, then we don't have to worry about where Cain's wife came from. It doesn't matter. Um, and they don't usually teach doctrine directly. Again, that's kind of this, it doesn't have direct moral implications application. But they do illustrate doctrines taught elsewhere in Scripture. And so a lot of times when we're going through the text today, we're going to go to other parts of Scripture to tell us what's going on in this passage, what's right in this passage, what's wrong in this passage. Um, and in the end, the, the most important thing, the big story, is God is the hero of all biblical narratives. These tell you about God. <clears throat> uh, all right. So we're finally to the passage. Um, this is our first view into life lived for God after the fall. Um, and Moses starts by telling us about you know the, kind of the first family. Um, Adam and Eve, the first two humans, they have two sons. And just a note about Cain, um, his name is a sound play on the Hebrew word forgotten. And the only reason I mention that is because, I mean, most times you hear of word plays, but this is a sound play. And it reminds us that this was an oral history. Um, and that there's things that when you write it down, you miss out on. And probably even a few more things when you translate it from Hebrew to English that you miss out on. I'm not saying that takes away from the overall meaning, but I'm, that's just a reminder, again, that there is, a, there is literary character to this text that we don't necessarily get <clears throat> just by a quick read. Um, so she, they have two kids, and the first thing that they tell us about this family is about worship, um, about how how they how do you interact with God after the fall? Um, and I think that's interesting, um, given that Moses is talking to the Israelites. He's also giving them, you know, four other books with a bunch of laws in them, and um, and a lot of them have sacrifices, like we see in this passage, but. He's telling them something about worship here that's very important. He doesn't want them to miss God's heart for worship. So he gives them an example where two people are worshiping God and God favors one's sacrifice over the other. Um, And another thing we see is kind of the relationship between work and worship here. Work provides kind of the the fodder for worship almost. yeah, out of out of their labor, they come. They bring up products that they're able to worship God with. Um, okay, so 
Does anyone, so what's different about these sacrifices? Abel, so Cain brings some, some of the fruit of his soil. Abel brings the fat portions of the firstborn. You know, it doesn't seem that, that different. Um, but the Lord looks on favor, looks with favor on Abel and not on Cain. What differences do you guys see between the sacrifices? What's that? He gave his first. Yeah. Yeah. Any other differences? Okay. He gave his first and best. Anything else? What's that? One has blood. Okay. Yeah, I think those are the big differences. Um, yeah, so so one's bringing like plants and one's bringing um, animals which have blood, and there is an importance in blood um, in in Hebrew. Blood has is like the essence of life in the in Hebrew. Um, but I would argue that that's not an important difference in this case because Moses is also commanding later on in the Pentateuch that you sacrifice both plants and animals. So I don't think we can we can say if that's an important difference here. Um, now there is you guys mentioned the fat part of the firstborn, um, and I think that that's getting more at an important difference. Um, what does that what does that tell you about Abel's heart? Yeah. And Jason, what were you getting at with the? Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> Um, so he wanted to give God the best that he had. The fat part of the animal is the best part in sacrifices, and the firstborn is the, be- the best part of your flock. But giving something first also tells you something else. I think Jason was saying it earlier. Yeah. Yeah, so... If you give the firstborn of something or the first of what comes in, there's no guarantee that you're going to get anything else after that, right? You might not be able to pay your bills if you gave the first part of your check. <laughs> um, just saying. No. Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, that, there's this kind of this element of trust in giving not only your best but your first. Um, but even that, I don't think, is the important difference. I think it I think physically that's not an important difference. And why would I say that? I think well elsewhere in scripture again we get a picture a view into what this passage means through the eyes of a New Testament writer. Um and we'll just read this real quick. Um now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. Read again. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. If you look, um, see if I can go back. If you look at this passage the Lord looks with favor on Abel and then his offering. Um, and again, Abel's offering tells you something about his heart, 
But the importance in this instance of worship is placed on his heart, and it's placed on where Abel is at, his faith in God. And from that Hebrews passage, I just want to bring out kind of a few elements about faith. Now, faith has hope in something, and it's certain of something that it cannot see. Now, what is our hope for as Christians? It's an all play. You guys can (laughs) jump in. Yeah, eternal life with Christ. And I would emphasize the with Christ part. Like, our hope is that we end up with Christ. It's not that we get good health. It's not that, you know, we get a job. It's not that we get a mansion in heaven. It's that we get Christ. He's the great reward. Um, And what is, what can we be certain? Why can we be certain of that hope? Is it because we're good people? No, it's not. It's because of Christ and what he did for us on the cross. Even, I mean, this this passage goes through all these people who had faith. The passage in Hebrews um, is kind of like the hall of faith of the the Bible. Um, But basically, all of these people have faith, but they're saved by Christ's sacrifice, Um, not by what they physically did. And so, yeah, let's move on to the next part. So, of course. Correct. Okay. It's the heart that they brought it with. Okay. And the way you know that is by seeing reference to it in the Testament. I didn't get that from reading that. Yeah, I th- you, get a, you get a hint at it. Like, right. the Israelites Somebody were meant to get this without the reinterpretation of the New Testament. Um, you get a hint at it by it being the firstborn, the fat parts. Like, Cain could have brought the first of his, his sacrifice as well. Um, he didn't. Um, but again, we'll, we'll, we're hitting this again in a second, so I'm going to keep moving. Um, any other questions before? <laughs> All right. So the Lord you know, says to Cain, you know, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Um, and he also talks about this idea of his anger putting him in a dangerous position with sin. Anger being an open door to his sin. And you see this throughout Scripture. There's always this idea of, you know, do not, you know, in your anger, do not sin. You know, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Anger, in this case, leads to murder. It can lead to a lot of other things, too, though. And I just want to challenge you that if you're angry with someone today, you need to deal with that immediately. Like in the, new, in the Gospels, it talks about you don't go to the altar to make a sacrifice if you're angry with someone. I mean, we don't have much of an altar here, but the, I mean, the, the modern-day example of that might be you don't take communion until you dealt with this anger that you have with another person, both with that person and with God. So sin is crouching at his door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And this... This desire is not for your good. 
It's the same, actually, word for desire that's used to describe, in the curse part, the woman's desire for her husband. It's this desire for mastery, which is why it follows up, but you must master it. It wants to master you, but you must master it. Um, how, do we, um, how do we master sin? You guys didn't know? There'd be so many questions today. I got to read ahead, so I know the answer. No, <laughs> no this came up in actually Galatians a lot. Um, you know, how do, we, how do we live lives with freedom but still not for sin? Here's a clue. Every Christian gets him. Yeah. <laughs> the Holy Spirit. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can master sin. Otherwise, Scripture tells us that we're slaves to sin. Um, with, with this putting our allegiance in Christ, we get the Holy Spirit um, in our lives. He births in us new desires. Um, we're no longer just not trying to sin, but we're actually desiring God and desiring the things of God. Living a righteous life becomes our desire. Um, and Leon hit on this last week, I thought, really well. Question in just a second. Um, it's this idea that, you know, and it's talked about in um, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, this idea that the, the focus isn't the sin in our lives. We throw off the sin and we fix our eyes on Christ. This is life for God. Um, question. Yeah. Um, okay, so the first question is, did Abel have the Holy Spirit? I would say, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I, I, off, off the cuff, I would say yes, um, just by the evidence of the New Testament. Um, and... And kind of the idea in the New, that's presented in the New Testament that all these people that are pre-Christ are saved through Christ, like concepts that don't that we don't really think about till the New Testament are still at work in the Old Testament. Um, Eric, do you have any? <laughs> pull me out of that ditch. <laughs> The, the reality of Pentecost was that the Holy Spirit uh, was now uh, moving on all creation, um, both Jew and Gentile alike, and uh, and then it was making it known for the Jew uh, that that was a reality. But but I think as you look at the Old Testament, I think we read the New Testament and we think from a perspective of an evangelical Christian, and we think, well, we're so special because of Pentecost. Now we are the only people who get access to the Holy Spirit, but then you have a lot of questions to answer in the Old Testament when people are obeying God. Uh, and it seems to me that what God was doing was that he was, he was indwelling those who loved him, but it wasn't, um, but it wasn't art- articulated 
as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit until Pentecost because God was trying to show something about how the nations were coming to Christ. So I just think we, we missed it on understanding the reason for, the whole, for Pentecost, and then we begin to read into it on the sense of, like, we are so special, we have this special sense of the Holy Spirit. So I think the Holy Spirit actually was given uh, to individuals uh, before Pentecost, but for a different reason. It was just for sanctification, whereas at Pentecost it was for the world to understand that God, the God of Israel is also the God of the universe. So we can, we can talk more about that later. That's why he sits up front <laughs> to save me. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, so the second question was, what is the door, right? Um, and I think that's kind of a figure of speech, like the door to one's heart. Um, and I, I would say that because in Revelation, it talks about, you know, Jesus standing at the door and knocking. And I think it's the same kind of concept. Like, I mean, whether you think of it as your heart or your life, I don't know that it matters. Um, I don't think there's a, a literal door there, though, that sin is, sin is waiting outside of. Uh, because they're the same word. It's not, I mean, in, in Hebrew, they're the same word. That's... I don't think there's any sexual connotation to it, which would point to the other passage not necessarily being sexual in nature. This is more, I mean, clearly here, just by the structure of the sentence, you see that the desire is an issue of mastery and kind of dominion over. So you can, you can reinterpret you know, Genesis 3 by this, but I think it's pretty clear here what the meaning is. All right. No more questions. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, all right. So he, so God talks about, you know, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And I think automatically we start thinking in, in terms of, you know, when we, we talk about doing, we think about, like, actions. And Cain actually wasn't physically doing anything wrong. He was sacrificing. Later, sacrifices are commanded. And I, I think even if he had brought his, his first and best, but his heart hadn't been right, he still wouldn't have been doing right. And so the, the issue of doing right here is, again, about the heart. Um, this isn't a formula for earning God's favor. When I was preparing this sermon, reading different commentaries and stuff on it, you know, someone used this as like the part of their checklist for obtaining health, wealth, and prosperity from from God. And I was I was confused by that. Um, but but we do that with Scripture a lot. We we see okay, well, I mean, hopefully none of us go out and you know kill our dog and sacrifice it or whatever. But but we do that with other passages that aren't so clearly different from what we do today. Um, you know, we, we look at them and we're like, if you do what's right, God will give you, you know, what, what you want. This is not a formula. 
Because it's about the heart. Because you can't, you can't come up with three steps to change your heart. You need Christ to change your heart. Um, and so, faith, I, but even in saying that, I don't want to say that works are bad. Like, some, we, want to, we want it to be all one or all the other. But faith and obedience are inseparable. You can't have true faith without works. But you can't conjure up faith by doing works. You know, I don't know how many times we've done corner stores and we have this survey and part of the survey says, you know, I think part of the survey says that you end up talking to God and he asks you, why, why should I let you into heaven? And virtually everyone I talk to, if they say, I don't, if, other than saying, I don't know, if they have a response, it'll be because I'm a good person, because I've done more good than bad. Like we're on this kind of cosmic scale. And if we just do one more good work than bad work, we'll get into heaven. But it's not about what you do. You know, if you're living life for God, you will be doing stuff. Yes. Like don't, don't forget that. But you can't, you can't get to God by going through the motions. That got Cain cast out of God's presence. It will get us... The same. We will go to hell if we just do the motions. If that's all you're doing here today is going through the motions of coming to a Sunday service, you're missing the point. You won't go to heaven by doing that. You won't be with Christ for eternity by doing that. Because your hope is in yourself. Your hope is in these little actions. All right. So, bringing it forward for today... This talks about, again, the connection between work and sacrifice. And, I mean, most of us have jobs. We don't, jobs that earn us a paycheck, not earn us produce or animals. Um, <laughs> but the, the, first, the first question I want to ask, like, are you working? This kind of assumes work, but are you working to pay for your living? I'll just leave it at that. And assuming you are, well, work's a good thing, guys. Work's commanded in Scripture. Your, scripture says, you know, if a person's not willing to eat or work, don't let them eat. Um, that's kind of, that's, that's a big deal. We don't think about work in terms of, of that these days. But what's the, what's, if you get a paycheck, what's the first thing you do with it? Or even if you get like a social security check or whatever, what's the first thing you do with it? What's that? Deposit it? Okay. What do you do after you deposit it? <laughs> That was a good one. That was a good one. <laughs> Pay the bills, right? That's probably what most of us would do. Tithe. Well, that's the real answer. But no, <laughs> no I, I, I believe that you do that. Um, <laughs> sorry. Let me just take a break. All right. So yeah, we should be tithing with it, right? We should be giving it to God. That's what Abel did. And he's living out that kind of idea of the first fruits, giving in the first of your fruit to God. Um, again, if that's all that's going on in your life and you don't have that heart change, it's, it doesn't mean anything. But if you do have that heart change, that should be the first thing that you desire to do. You should desire to give your first and best to God. You should trust God enough to provide for you to do that. 
And it's, but it's not just about like money. Like, what do we do with the first part of our time off? Like, if we get, occasionally I get off of work slash school early. You know, what's the first thing I do with that? You know, if I have a week off, what's how do we, what's the first thing I think about doing that? Probably taking a vacation. Um, it's not about investing in God's kingdom, but it ought to be. So, are you just going through the motions of worship? Like Eric was saying earlier, we do a lot of stuff. A lot of good stuff, but a lot of stuff. And we can get caught up in this idea that somehow this stuff is important in itself. It's not. You can help a lot of people, but if you don't have the heart change, you have no hope for eternity. And you're not offering others hope for eternity. So is your love for God undivided or, and unreserved? Or are you serving God on your terms? Is he kind of, is he a means to other ends, like health and wealth, um, or community? Okay, so Cain kills his brother. And so you, so you see that connection between anger leading to murder here. Um, and, it, and it's pretty easy to separate them out in our minds. But, and, and even the, you know, the old, the Ten Commandments have, you know, thou shalt not kill. Like in them. It doesn't talk about anger. But when Christ talks about the, and in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes through the Ten Commandments and he and he kind of flushes them out, and he points to the reality behind all of them. It was always a heart issue. And he, he brings anger and murder much closer together, which is why it's so important that we need to deal with it. He says, you know, if you're angry with your brother, if you call him a fool, like, you're as much in danger of the fire of hell as if you had killed him. Like, I mean, he physically killed him here, but the anger alone would have required a pe- repenting. Um, okay, so God finds out, and, well, of course he found out. Um, <laughs> the, funny, the funny thing is, oftentimes you'll see God ask someone, you know, you know where's, where's my boy Abel? And he's, you know, am I my brother's keeper? Which, by the way, if you've ever heard that, which you probably have, um, I don't know why anyone would quote that, because... <laughs> Because they often, they use it in the funniest ways, like as a justification for not looking out for your brother. Um, so figure out who you're quoting and don't, don't use that. <laughs> yeah, the answer is yes. Um, but I mean, Cain says that with flippancy and even as he's receiving this punishment from God, what does he care about? Does he ever express remorse for killing Abel? No. What does he care about? Yeah, he's like, why are you punishing me so bad? Like, it's more than I can bear. Um, what he does get is that he's getting cast out of God's presence, and that's important. That's probably actually more important than the murder piece, because sin drives you from God's presence, which is where the Israelites were actually at, too. They were driven out of, and driven away from ground. They were driven away from the promised land 
because they didn't trust God, like Abel. And they were forced to be restless wanderers on earth. And ultimately, I think this is a picture of humanity after the fall. Like, we don't get to walk with God anymore. Well, we, we do in a sense, but it's not, it's not like it was in Eden. Because sin entered the world. Sin has made this world that was supposed to be for us, that was supposed to be our home for eternity, into a place of wandering. Um, and another fun thing about names. So the land of Nod is where Cain goes to. And Nod actually means the land of wandering. He's a wanderer in a land of wandering. It's very redundant. Um, but, there's, I mean, he's emphasizing something. The, and the Israelites knew what wandering was like. So, we see Cain's wife. And we don't know where she came from. And that's okay. Um, and then it starts to talk about Cain's family. And just a couple notes on genealogies. We're going to see a number of them. But when the Hebrews sat down to write genealogies, they weren't trying to account for every last member of the family. They were hitting the highlights. They might not even get every generation in there. So so right after this, Genesis 5 has another genealogy. Um, That's kind of the, the chosen line, the one that's coming, isn't is the chosen line. Right here we have kind of the line of sinful man. Um, and they, you, know, you see all these names, and they do have meanings. Um, some of the meanings are a little bit more confusing than others. So we're not going to go through them. You're welcome to look those up on your own. But I don't think they're terribly relevant to um, the message today. But w- so, so even this idea that this is a sinful line being contrasted with the chosen line to come can tempt us to say, again, look at these people. They're bad. Here's what they did. These things are bad too. Like, so we have you know, people raising livestock. We probably don't think that that's bad. We might think that music is bad, though. Like, there's certain denominations that you know, have a strong aversion to music because they think it's of the devil. And you know, So you can, you can just come up with funny ideas God, Moses never takes a stance on any of these things. You know, you, you do see um, polygamy in here. Lamech marries two women. And we know from other parts of Scripture that polygamy is wrong. We don't know it from this passage, though. Um, one thing about, so this boast at the end is kind of interesting. Um, there's some competing theories about what it means. But uh, notice the number and the kind of context that Lamech is. You know, he's 77 times of basically revenge. And seven, seven is a complete, a number of completeness in Scripture. And so to say 77 times is kind of completely complete. And <clears throat> Jesus uses 77. Do you guys remember where he uses that number? Yeah, it's about forgiveness. It's possible, even probable, that Jesus had this kind of boast in mind, like that humankind wants complete revenge, but I want my people to be completely complete in their forgiveness. 
Yeah. 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 So what Nick was saying is that earlier in the passage, God promises to protect Cain. It's kind of hard to understand why. But here, Lamech promises to protect himself, basically. <laughs> so that kind of adds to the pride of the, of the statement. Um, so I'm not going to talk about this because contextually it belongs with the next passage, except to say that notice the last line, at that time men began to call on the name of the Lord. Adam and Eve have another son. From this son is the seed of kind of the chosen people. Um, this is your seed if you're a Christian. Yes. So what do we sacrifice today? We as we discussed earlier, we're not often killing animals or even plants to sacrifice them to God. Um, scripture later on tells us that we are to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Holy is this idea of set apart for God. This is our spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So what does it mean to be a living sacrifice, family? Again, you're welcome to chime in. Yeah, so... Nick said, to trade the things we find pleasure in for the things that God would be pleased with. Is that right? Yeah, and I guess I should qualify that too. And to trust God for the heart change that then we would be pleased with those things too. Yeah, so allow, allow God to be working in our heart and trusting him for that so that we do actually begin to desire the things of God. How do we, anyone else, how do we become a living sacrifice? Yeah, definitely in the idea of a living sacrifice is this ongoing. It's not a one and done for us. As long as we're on earth and alive, we are to be sacrificing ourselves. I think, I won't spend too much time here. You guys probably want to go home. But, um, so, it, so basically, we're, I mean, it's our lives. It's everything that we are. We're sacrificing that to God. And... It's interesting that, I mean, we kind of get an explanation of how to do this by the verse 2. It says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we are to be renewing our mind with God's truth. We are to be, like Nick was saying, starting to value the things that God values and measure our lives by the things that God measures our lives by, which will be very different from the world around you. Again, you're a holy Sacrifice. You're set apart from the patterns of the world around you. 
So, is your life set apart from the world around you? Or would the way you live your life still make sense if God wasn't real? If we learn tomorrow that there was no resurrection, what would your reaction be? I mean, would it be great? I've got time for the things that I wanted to do but didn't have enough time for because I always had to go to discipleship. Paul, when he grapples with that idea, he says, I would of all men be the most pitiful one if none of this was real. His life didn't make sense apart from Christ. I think most of ours do, though. Because we're pursuing the same pattern of the world. We're pursuing good jobs, right schools. We're pursuing the same things the world pursues. It doesn't look any different, except that we come here on Sundays. But it should. So do you harbor any reservations about serving God wholeheartedly? Are there things you won't give up, places you won't go, or things you won't do for God? I've talked with a lot of people about this question. And about, you know, you know, how do you know if you're called to some place? And a lot of people will talk about, well, you know, I love what you guys are doing, or I love what people are doing over here, but I could never do that. Even if you're here, there's probably some area in your life where you're saying that. I could never give that over to God. So does God get your first and best? I mean, think about it. Like, go home and think about this, but when you get your paycheck, when you get your time off, where does it go? Are you excited about giving it to God? Or are you trying to serve God and something else? You know, are you, do you feel conflicted when you're asked to give more of yourself to God because of what you have to give up? Or are you excited about turning more of your life over to the thing you most desire? So are you going through the motions but have never given your love and your allegiance to King Jesus? If you haven't given your life over to Christ, I'd love to talk to you. I know Eric would and Eric and Leon would and really anyone who's in discipleship at MacAv. Um, we want to we see you delight in our King the same way that we do. That's why we're here. Period. You know, you can, you can do that today. And I, I pray that you would do it sooner than later. But, family, I just encourage you to take the notes. They have most of this stuff in them. And wrestle with this stuff. This is what, and this is what life is about. All right, let me pray for us. Lord God, I thank you for, again, for your word and for just your grace in our lives, Lord, for taking us while we're still dead and, and just enemies of you, Lord, that you loved us enough that while we were 
spitting on you and nailing you to a cross, that you would save us, and that you would call us your children. Lord God, would we find our delight in you? Lord, would you change our lives to look more and more like you? Would you give us your spirit to work change in our lives? Amen.